Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of the Movie Marathoners podcast. I'm your host, Monty. It is August 31st. It's 7.30 in the morning out here, and I'm joined today by Ali Sharkey and Mike Storr from Out of Our Element, a website featuring film and television reviews, as well as rants and opinions. Thanks for joining me today, guys. How are you doing? Ah, Yeah, we're we're doing really well. It's a nice, uh, it's half past 12 in the afternoon here, so I think we've got the better end of the deal, uh, to be honest. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, it's nice and early there for you. It was was tough getting up, but I got to do it. We're moving today, so uh, I wanted to bang out a podcast. Um, I think it'll be a good one. So um, as always, I just like to warm up by asking my guests the same question. So Ollie, Mike, have either of you ran a marathon? Well, no, not quite. We've we've run a couple, we've done a couple movie marathons. We, we once watched all of the Marvel movies back to back. Oh my God, really? <laughs> yes. Yep. That was, that was a tough one. <laughs> yeah. Like, like all 28 or was it at a time where there was 12? Or- uh, no, it was, it was, so it was, um, when was it? Last m- Last May, and, and we did Iron Man to Infinity War, yeah, back to back over one weekend. Yes, um, about took us about thirty nine hours, and that was rough. I'd like to say that was harder than a real marathon, but I think I'm, I'm, it was definitely I'm longer. Oh yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, actually, I've, did you, I don't know. I, I'm not very fit, so maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> did you uh, like sleep at all, or did you just we we had a we had a rule that we could each take one kind of. Uh, film off each so we could just like take a nap for an, an entire film and yeah we tried to ki- stay awake as much as possible I think I slept through did I miss I think I slept through uh, Thor Dark World I believe. that's a good that's a good choice yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so who had to watch Thor Dark World alone yeah that was me that was that was Ollie um, okay. I had to go through <laughs> that one which was because that that falls right at that point and it fell right at the point in the middle of the night when I was when we were really really struggling yes uh, so we could have done with a real um hard hitter there but unfortunately we we had to settle for that one <laughs> okay so this week we'll be running through Quentin Tarantino's latest film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh I mean better late than never I suppose yeah um <laughs> we'll warm up with brief spoiler-free thoughts on the film and then we'll run into spoiler territory where we can talk freely about the film Brilliant. and then as always we'll round out the episode with our point two section where we discuss what else we've been watching so first let's read a synopsis of once upon a time in Hollywood a faded television actor and his stunt double strive to achieve fame and success in the film industry during the final years of Hollywood's golden age in 1969, Los Angeles. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie. And of course, it's written and directed by Tarantino. To my right is Bounty Law series lead and Jake Cahill himself, Rick Dalton. And to my left is Rick's stunt double, Cliff Booth. to the audience exactly what it is a stunt double does. Actors are required to do a a lot of dangerous stuff. Cliff here is meant to help carry the load. Is that uh, how you describe your job, Cliff? What, carrying his load? Yeah, it's about right. as lethal weapons. We get into a fight, I accidentally kill you. I go to jail. Anybody accidentally kills anybody in a fight, they go to jail. It's called manslaughter. (laughs) 
That was the best acting I've ever seen in my whole life. So this film uh, was released in the U.S. in July 26th, and then I believe it was released in the U.K. for you guys in August 14th, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we've we've gotten kind of to experience this entire take cycle of the film. I mean, if you've if you've been on film Twitter, you've seen that there's been a lot of hot takes, a lot of controversies about this whole film. What was it like for you guys in the UK getting a movie kind of, you know, after all the takes had already been given? Did you guys read about stuff before you saw the movie or was it just kind of tune everything out until you saw the film? I I pretty much try to avoid reading anything uh before a film like even uh i don't i rarely watch trailers as well um just because i try to i want to go into a film as fresh as possible so for me i I didn't read any of that stuff i i've only really just started reading about it since seeing it um just to catch up a little bit so i yeah i didn't really have much effect on me um before going to see it it's difficult sometimes trying to avoid spoilers because obviously most places do get films quite a bit earlier than we do. Um, so it's hard mm. if you're just browsing Reddit or something and you see a headline come up and you have to like quickly scroll past it because you don't want to read anything. So <laughs> yeah. it can be a little bit difficult. So, Mike, you, I think, saw this most recently of us. I saw it uh, the beginning of August. Um, so why don't we start with you? Just generally, what do you think about this film? And... How does it compare to some of Tarantino's other films? Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, it is definitely not up there with some of his best films. I think it's it's one of his weaker ones. Um, I did find that it was very slow to start with. Uh, it took mm-hmm. me a while to become really invested in what was going on. Um, it was only the kind of later sections of the film that I started to enjoy a bit more. Um I think I'd watch it again. Uh, I, I'm not exactly in a hurry to go and buy it on Blu-ray or anything like that, but I'd, I'd watch it again, but it's definitely not up there with one of my favorites. Yeah, and how about you, Ollie? Well, I mean, I saw I first saw it about a week ago um, with my girlfriend and, and so had kind of like a first perspective there, but then I actually went to see it with Mike last night because he was meant to go with someone else, but unfortunately he wasn't able to. So... We oh, both cool. saw it last night. Um, and I got a different perspective on the film. I kind of picked up on a lot of things that I hadn't noticed the first time around and, and how I reacted to certain parts of the film was, was a little different. But overall, I kind of, I kind of got to agree with my, my, uh, co-podcaster here. Um, <laughs> it was, it's definitely not up there with, with Tarantino's best. I wouldn't go as far to say that it's a bad film, but it's not a good Tarantino film. Um, it doesn't reach the heights of some of his earlier work, like Pulp Fiction, um, Reservoir Dogs, those kind of things that, you know, are really kind of genre, genre defining films, um, and really iconic and, and really omnipresent in kind of film history, I suppose. I can't see this film ever being one of those films. Um, like you said, Mike, it was slow to start off with, not as engaging as some of, some of those, some of, Sorry, I can't get my words out. <laughs> Wasn't as engaging as some of his other films. Um, but the second perspective did did enlighten a few things for me. So I'm kind of glad that I got the opportunity to see it again before we before we have this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I was definitely hoping to see it sometime this week um, again. And, you know, I the film is two hours and 45 minutes. So if you have to go to a theater that ends up being, you know, 
with travel and everything, like four hours of time, um, which I just didn't really have time for. And um, but I didn't actually find that length in the film to um, to be that long, to be honest. I, I okay. thought it was pretty easy. And I, I agree with you. It's slow to start. To me, it came off more of like a hangout film. It kind of feels like this island breeze sort of thing where it's just very enjoyable and relaxing until obviously, you know, it isn't at the <laughs> yes. at the end, which we'll talk about. Yeah. Um, but I found that this film actually like felt very different than most Tarantino films. Yes. And I'm sort of I'm sort of weird that I, I'm not as huge a fan of of Tarantino as it seems like everybody else's. I don't I don't hate his films or anything like that, but I don't have a um like a high regard or a extremely high regard for some of his earlier films and I just recently saw Reservoir Dogs. So it's kind of hard for me to compare this one to some of his older films, but I did actually really enjoy this a lot. I found that a lot of the parts of Tarantino films that rub me the wrong way a little bit like the overindulgent in violence and some of his I'll say colorful language was (laughs) (laughs) a little less in this film, but it was sort of replaced with the more indulgent in kind of the Hollywoodness of the entire thing. Hmm. What do you guys know about like, you know, Hollywood in the 1960s, uh, especially coming from the UK? Is that something that you're aware of? Um, Well, to be honest, it's, I don't know an awful lot about it. Um, I know, some things mainly due to my dad he's a huge fan of of that kind of golden era of hollywood so i'm very interested to actually see what he makes of this film because one of my thoughts on it was i wonder if it would have resonated more with me if i were a bit more familiar with those kind of with that kind of era um mm-hmm. cuz i think it's packed full of references to that time and it's very much feels like a love letter to it and i feel that I didn't really appreciate that as much because I didn't have that familiarity with it. Um, it, I did very much like the the. It's almost like a fairy tale in a way, the way that it portrays this time of Hollywood where just everything seems so magical and and vibrant and colourful, and it's kind of a a place where you really can go and fulfil your dreams with that potential. Still with the the main character Rick getting a bit burnt out. Um, Right. feeling a bit yeah, sort of realizing his own uselessness um but yeah I, I i definitely enjoyed uh i guess the aesthetics of it of that kind yeah. of yeah old hollywood scene um but i'm not i'm not really that familiar with it um yeah i i, I totally agree i mean i'm not you know i can't say i've watched a, a huge amount of kind of 50s and 60s hollywood films um but even even without that and even before watching this film it's a time that's so romanticized um you know you think back to it and it it, it is that kind of golden or silver age of hollywood and you know mirroring a lot of what you said it it was so vibrant and so colorful and it was a very nice place to be i mean from purely an aesthetic point of view it was a it was fantastic to watch it was a lovely place to be it was a it was a nice place to be for that length of time for two and three quarter hours um even without understanding most of the references and you know not being that familiar with the time period it was very you were really really transported back there i'm actually right with you guys i know virtually nothing about 1960s hollywood (laughs) i guess i have less of an excuse but uh i mean my dad actually did grow up in california around this time so i'm eager to kind of 
probe his mind about, you know, uh, Lancer and whether he watched that TV show and stuff. <laughs> yeah. and I'm going to, I'm going to try and do some sort of podcast interview thing with him just to kind of see where he was. I think he was 16 at the time that this film takes place. So wow. All that, right. that would be really interesting. But speaking of knowing nothing, and I guess this makes me a terrible podcast host. Um, <laughs> I knew absolutely nothing about the Manson family murders, um, which I guess not from the synopsis, but that's sort of what this film or, you know, it's peripherally related to this film. Yes. Did, was this something that you guys were aware of? Because I went in knowing just nothing and it made me take some assumptions going into the film that were just turned out to be very wrong. Right. I, I knew, uh, small bits. Um, to be honest, quite a lot of it came from, uh, American horror story. The, um, uh, okay. Uh, so that kind of portrayal about it. I, I, I knew about it. Um, and I, you kind of vague details the you know, sort of Sharon Tate was married to Belansky. She was heavily pregnant at that time and she had a group of friends over that kind of thing. So uh, I guess we'll talk about this a little bit later, but in the back end of the film where it's leading up to certain things, I felt that that kind of knowledge of what had happened, there are certain events that, that I know happened uh in real life when, for example, they went out to a restaurant to go and have food. So when those kind of things happen, you kind of, it sets that expectation of what it's leading up to. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I knew bits, but again, not that much. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's probably quite bad because it is a huge event and it's a terrible tragedy that happened. And it's probably something that I feel like I should know more about. Yeah, that's how I feel. I mean, I, I mean, I had heard of the Manson murders, but I assumed that Manson was the serial killer, not that, you know, these, Uh, this family of people that kind of idolized him were the murderers. So there's a scene very, very early on in the movie where Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio are driving and they drive past a bunch of hippies Hmm. and there's like this ominous music in the background. And obviously these hippies then are the uh, you know, they're part of the the cult that worships Manson, but I didn't know anything about that. So I, I thought Manson uh, was going to murder these hippies. Right. And that was very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I almost went into this film kind of seeking an education in it. I, I, I mean, I don't like similar to Mike, I knew kind of a few details about, you know, Sharon Tate and, and the night it happened, but nothing in any kind of great detail. And it seems like it's kind of one of those, I don't know, those um, American crime stories, if you like, which isn't on the radar as much as some of the other ones, like some of the other names that are famous for those similar kind of crimes and serial killers and murder and, and things like that. It's not one that seems to be on the radar as much. And the so, Manson family. The Manson family, but I mean, it's in terms of the details. Oh, okay. Like, I, I think the name is really famous, but in terms yeah, of the details sure. behind the crime, it's not something that's spoken about as much as you know a lot of other a lot of other topics I suppose and a lot of other figures in history um, and so I, like I say I kind of went into this from looking for an education mm. into this yeah I agree so that's Mike correct Mike so uh, that, that was that was Ollie this is me oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so uh, Ollie then do you think that this educated you at all I mean I need to go and have look more into it and see exactly how dramatized this was, I suppose, and how accurate this was to, to real life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean uh, it's definitely that like alternate history kind of thing to it. 
one of my first uh, things out of the movie was I turned to my friend and was like, well, I still know nothing about the Manson family. Yeah. Movies, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, you're so. right. I, see, I did uh, just going back to that scene that you were talking about earlier where they, they drive past the, uh, this group of the Man- Manson family. I, I did know that part of it where the uh, Manson just kind of had this crazy influence on, on his followers and that he was incredible. Is I don't think he actually killed anybody. But he's just this, right. this terrible monster who managed to build up this cult. Um, so I kind of, when that almost music did play, in the back of my head, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I know who those people are. And it was like this really real feeling of dread because I was like, oh God. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because of these murders and because of where you, you know, you know the time period more or less and you know that it's kind of leading up to this thing because Margot Robbie's Sharon Tate is in it. There is this sort of feeling of dread that kind of um, is simmering. So even though it is, as you're saying, very enjoyable to watch and it's a pleasant place to be, there is this sort of undercurrent of unease in the film that I think Tarantino plays with pretty interestingly. But uh, before we move into spoilers, it just it sounds like some of your problems are more plot-wise or kind of the, um, I don't know, the, the flow of the movie. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? I suppose you, you spoke earlier and you said that I suppose you weren't kind of the biggest Tarantino fan. I suppose mm-hmm. I, you know, some of Tarantino's films I, I absolutely adore, like Pulp Fiction, The Kill Bills, um, Reservoir Dogs and Glorious Bastards. And I suppose the the bar was set very high for me. I kind of put this film okay. on a pe- pedestal, particularly after hearing, you know, a lot of the how positive the reviews were, you know, for the first two weeks mm-hmm. before before it came out in the UK. Um, and so this the bar was set really really high, and there were a lot of things that fell short. I felt a lot of different aspects that make a Tarantino film that for me weren't really there. Uh, that that's kind of, that probably sums up kind of my feeling towards the film. I think one good example of that would be my expectations of the dialogue. I one of my favourite things about Tarantino is he's just incredible at writing really really snappy and witty dialogue that just kind of flows. And I didn't I don't think that film has that as much. I, I, it didn't really feel too much like a Tarantino film. It was strange. It didn't have that uh, that really clever dialogue that he's well known for. A lot of the film is very silent, actually. Yeah, yeah. a lot of kind of driving scenes. and Yeah, a lot of driving. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I agree. I, I felt the dialogue, that was the main thing that was lacking for me. And, and typically in Tarantino films, you spend a lot of time with the characters in the, in the scenes. Yeah. I mean, I could I could sit at that table and listen to the Reservoir Dogs talk about tipping all day. I could sit in the car yeah. with Vincent and Jules and talk about foot massages and butter aisles for cheese. I could do that for the whole film. But with this film, I, you know, I, I wasn't really compelled to kind of sit with the characters and just sit there and listen to them talk. There was none of that engagement in the dialogue that his, yeah. his other films are famous for. I, did, I, okay. I wanted one of those scenes where you just have these two characters talk about nothing. Like just a huge conversation mm-hmm. about the differences between McDonald's and different countries. That's like, it's such a, a simple subject, but it's so entertaining and so funny to watch and to hear about. And there, I, I didn't, there wasn't that in that film. And I kind of, that was something that I wanted to see just because I love that part of Tarantino so much. Yeah, I think the film more coasts on the 
star power of DiCaprio and Pitt, really, because I think that you're, you're right. There's not there's not a lot of creative dialogue, but being with DiCaprio and Pitt, you know, in a car to me was was it was very easy to watch. It was just they they are natural movie stars, so their charisma kind of melts off the screen, and I definitely felt that. I was enjoying myself just kind of watching them in, in you know, a well-shot, gorgeous movie that kind of mm. has this magical feeling to it. But I completely understand what you guys are saying. I, I mean, I agree. I think the first, so the kind of the opening scenes, they're driving around Hollywood in, um, in Rick's car, you know, with the fantastic soundtrack in the background. That I love that bit. Of that, and that was a real introduction to the setting and really kind of put you in that era and was just nice to watch them cruising around. But after kind of the second, third, maybe even fourth scene of just people driving around to music with not an awful lot going on, I kind of got a bit tired of that. I, I was getting a bit impatient with that. Um, <laughs> that was that was my feeling towards those, towards those scenes. We were saying yesterday, I, felt, I almost felt like I was in... Grand Theft Auto. I was playing Grand Theft Auto where you drive from one mission to another and radio comes on and you're just driving around the city. I've, I just felt like I was playing that for some parts of the film. Yeah, totally fair. Totally fair. All right. So let's just uh, give some scores for this and then move right into spoilers. You know, it's been out for a while, so I don't think we have to convince people whether or not to see this too much without spoilers. So, um, Ollie, what, did, what would you give this out of 10? 10. Um, I'd probably give it... Maybe a, a soft, no, 6.5. I'd give it a 6.5, okay. I think. I, I mean, which is not dreadful by any means. It probably, some of the some of the things I've said so far probably would make you think that I would score it lower. But again, this isn't a bad movie. It's it's a well-made movie, but for a Tarantino, a Tarantino movie, yeah. it's it's towards kind of the bottom of his, his uh, catalogue. Okay, and Mike? I think still, maybe like a six, um, same kind of mark. And again, I think it's the fact that it is a Tarantino film and that kind of sets a certain expectation in your head going into a film. I, I wonder if this had been any other director, I wonder if I would have enjoyed it a lot more. Have you guys seen Hail Caesar by the Coen brothers? I have not. I have not, no. Okay, this, this film actually does remind me a lot, a little bit more of a Coen film than a Tarantino film, just because it's kind of quirky and love lettery to cinema and things like that but yeah anyways i i mean it's kind of exciting i normally don't have this much of a a point disparity between me and my guests so this is oh. this will be exciting oh, wow. uh, yeah i'm gonna give it an 8.5 oh wow cool. i and i don't know maybe i just have like a naturally writing right skewed you know point system or whatever i'd put seven as just a solid movie so yeah probably a little less harsh than you guys fair enough <laughs> but <laughs> um yeah I, I really enjoyed this movie i was very pleasantly surprised that it didn't feel like it was almost three hours especially given that it's fairly plotless mm. for most of it I'd, I'd agree with that it's it definitely doesn't feel that long reading some of the takes on it and some of the controversies behind it i don't totally understand like I, I don't even know if I thought about the film that hard. It just sort of felt like it was a film that I could just enjoy and just relax in. And maybe because I didn't have that Tarantino expectation, maybe that was a little more freeing. So I didn't have the uh, kind of the, the very, very high bar. And maybe that's just the reason for this. But I, there's some critics out there, especially critics that are like, you know, this this was amazing and fantastic. And let's talk about this 
forever and nothing nothing really hit me quite that hard but i did really enjoy this movie and i thought it was a perfect kind of summer film that still has that creative art house kind of feel to it so i'd I'd recommend it but yeah i'd absolutely say to go and see it um because by no means did i hate any part of it i wasn't (laughs) sat in the theater just kind of angry or anything like that i like I, i enjoyed myself i did have a good time watching the film it just wasn't quite where i wanted it to be i mean i definitely enjoyed it on the second watch because i wasn't sitting around hoping for something to happen soon because i knew because i knew what was going to happen the first time i found the first you know first two acts of the film i was just waiting around for something to <laughs> something to happen but on the second watch i kind of knew how, uh, i knew what to expect and so i could kind of just relax a bit more and kind of just soak it in i suppose mm-hmm. so i think the second viewing was probably more favorable if anything great yeah i'll definitely have to check it out again for a second time i just need to find a four hour block of time to <laughs> yeah. check it out unless i wait for it to come on you know dvd or whatever and i can watch it at home in the comfort yes. of my new house yeah <laughs> yes oh yeah definitely <laughs> all right so let's move on to spoilers i'll say spoilers for once upon a time in hollywood starting now that's my secret cat I'm always angry. So you guys alluded to this, that this uh, this 1960s time in Hollywood is very romanticized and glorified. I thought it was really interesting. And maybe I should have known given, you know, I guess spoilers for Inglorious Bastards here, but <laughs> given some of Tarantino's other films like Inglorious Bastards, where he kind of tweaks with history a little bit yes i found the idea of this being as the title suggests a fantasy world was really interesting what do you guys think about that you know obviously at the end of the film the good guys win the bad guys suffer a very gruesome terrible death uh there was a couple other things where it was very clear that there was some sort of fantasy or not even fantasy but kind of magical realism going on in this film how do you feel about that yeah i'd I'd completely agree with that um it did uh yeah once upon once upon a time in hollywood it's a fairy tale film it's it's kind Mm of this uh magical imagining of what could have been if certain events had changed if sharon tate had survived uh or, or had not even be attacked been attacked in the first place if the manson family had failed um and I suppose also thinking about uh, the character of Rick, it's kind of he gets his fairy tale ending right at the end. He he gets his uh, way into this bigger world of Hollywood, and he gets to meet with Sharon Tate. He's invited into the home, so it's it's like a real happy ending. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think that is a huge way, uh, a huge part of the film is to view it as a fairy tale story. Um, with this magical version of Hollywood. I mean, I have no idea what Hollywood was like back in that time. That's pretty much exactly how I imagine it. But I have no idea, really. But I'd, I'd be inclined to guess that, like, little girls don't come up to you and say that that was the best acting that you've ever seen. <laughs> that was, I mean, it's a great line. It's a great scene. But <laughs> I, I thought that was sort of like, oh, okay, we're kind of living out this guy's redemption story in a time period and in a world that never really existed. Mm. Yeah, everything everything works out the way it should in the end for everyone, which 
you know is is very fairy tale in a way it's that's that's yeah. a somber point but it's very it, that that is a fairy tale um trope if you like yeah and you even have a that kind of relationship between rick and cliff potentially sparking back up again when cliff's kind of driving away in the ambulance and you because before then it was kind of like they were having this big night out they were drinking uh they were taking drugs and it was it felt like the end of that friendship they were no longer going to be working together so it sort of felt they were saying goodbye to each other and then when he's in the ambulance you kind of feel as though okay maybe it's not the end they're gonna you know they're gonna hang out more they're still going to be friends after that they're going to survive it um so it was it did kind of work out for everybody and yeah everybody got the ending that they wanted yeah, I mean, of course, except the Manson family. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, what do you guys think about that? I, I found that, there, there. I mean, unlike most Tarantino films, the violence in this is incredibly subdued with the exception of two very, very hyper intense peaks of violence. Obviously, the first one being when, uh, not is Cliff Booth? Yeah, when Cliff Booth, like, beats the crap out of the hippie yeah. in Spawn Ranch. And then the other is the scene that culminates with Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio torching somebody in a pool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so is that the the Tarantino that you were looking for more? Or how do you feel about that? You see, this is, this is the main takeaway I had from my second perspective. And it's something that we were thinking about last night. My first watch, I was... I mean, I, I think the last act of the film kind of after the six month later break um in the narrative is fantastic i think that's the best part of the film i think it's got that tarantino flair that comes out of that that kind of um gimmicky but in the right way um using Mm -hmm. gimmicks for a reason and everything kind of links um together and then like you say it culminates in that very very violent scene and on my first viewing i was just i was just glad that the energy had picked up and there was something was happening and it was it was entertaining. It was it, the way it was played. It was comedic. So I was just glad for something to happen. Second watch, I kind of, like I say, I kind of relaxed a little bit more and I took things in a little bit slower. And then I watched that and it felt a lot more indulgent on the second watch. Mm-hmm. It felt the level of violence felt less necessary, if you like. And I mean, Tarantino's violence in Tarantino's films has always been very cartoonized, if that's a word. Uh, it, it, it's very, it's a caricature, I suppose, and, and there's a, there's a cartooniness yeah. to it and an over the topness to it. And you know, it's predominantly been focused against either fictional characters or characters from history who lived quite a long time ago. And so there's kind of a disparity between some of the atrocities that these people committed I and mean, I'm talking kind of say like um, like the Nazis in Inglourious Bastards and then kind of the, the plantain, plantation owners in uh, Django Unchained yeah nobody's going to feel bad if you are yeah. hyper-violent to Nazis yes right? like, yeah exactly apart uh, from Nazis of course well yeah, yeah apart right. from them. no one cares about them but it, it happened long ago so to kind of cartoon the violence against them feels it doesn't you know it, it, it doesn't feel insensitive but for this it felt it felt like it hasn't been long enough for kind of it's only been what 40 40 years 50 years oh I guess yeah. 50 mm-hmm. years it feels it almost felt to me that not enough time has passed for us to be laughing at the kind of the role reversal it didn't feel like that that was necessarily justice uh, if you know what I mean I suppose I suppose you, you wouldn't do that kind of thing for say 
21st century terrorist attacks, you wouldn't kind of cartoon, cartoonize the violence against the perpetrators because it would seem insensitive towards the victims of those. And I didn't mm, feel that enough yeah. times passed for it to not feel insensitive towards kind of, you know, the, the victims of, of the, the Manson family or the Manson cult. Do you feel like okay, it kind of takes away from the point? Uh, not the point exactly, but it, do you think it takes away that sense of justice? It's not really getting justice for it at all. It's it's kind of... Hmm. I mean, we we enjoy those scenes because it's hyper-violent. It, did, it felt a bit too much, which is a strange thing to say for a Tarantino film. It's like the... It was almost too Tarantino in the violence, even though it didn't reach heights of like Kill Bill level cartoonishness. But it felt, I couldn't help but feel it was certain bits of that final scene were a little bit silly. With um, for one example would be uh, the, uh, I don't know her name, but the woman with the, the knife who Rick ends up burning in the pool. Um, the way that she just sort of suddenly leap up again yeah yeah leap up and scream and sort of run along it reminded me a lot of uh, the evil dead um okay (laughs) so like the the original evil dead where you kind of have i don't know it's it's like a, a weird puppet character almost where they just sort of suddenly jerk up running around not like a person it it was it was very uh i don't know it distracted me a bit yeah, I didn't find. I don't want to call out the 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 actress by name, but I did not find her performance particularly convincing. As even when she was in the car, kind of like trying to to convince them that they should kill Rick, I thought she was by far the weakest link in the film in terms of acting. Hmm. And so her sort of like screaming and waving around and everything was definitely over the top. I mean, those characters were played in a comedic way, and I suppose. You know, it, it yeah. hasn't been long enough for that to be done in a way that doesn't feel a little bit insensitive towards their victims. That's that's kind of sums up that point that I maybe laboured a little bit a minute ago. <laughs> I I mean, I, I also think that there's something to just, for better or for worse, I mean, she's a terrible person, but she's a, a young woman. And it. I definitely had a hard time seeing someone like that be just absolutely torched and hit with a can of dog food in the face and stuff it was it was kind of I, I mean like it's it's you're right in with maybe some distance and maybe in a different context it could be funny or I don't, I don't know I don't know I don't even know if it's supposed to be funny I feel like mm-hmm. it, it is a little uncomfortable to say that something like that could even be funny because of the context surrounding it so yeah 100 percent because I don't think it was purposefully funny. I don't think it was meant to be comedic in any way. I think it was just meant to be brutal. But I don't think it was done quite right uh, in order to have that effect. If you think about something, have you seen the film Drive? Yes. So I suppose a spoiler for Drive here, uh, if you haven't <laughs> seen that film. But there's, there's a scene in that film where Ryan Gosling's character stamps a man's head in uh, in an elevator um, and that is just brutal because he just doesn't stop until you hear like this disgusting smushing sound where this person's you don't really see anything you just see Ryan Gosling's reaction for most of it um, and I feel like that was the kind of feeling that they were trying to aim for is just this really violent and brutal deaths to these 
uh, horrible people. Um, but it, it, it didn't really have that effect for me. It, it felt a, a bit too slapstick almost, mm-hmm. um, especially mm-hmm. with the, the dog food in the, in the face. It, it was just, it's, it's a ridiculous concept. And I, I don't, I don't know. It was, it, I felt it kind of undercut the, it undercut the fact. A lot of the dread that was in that last, I don't know, 25 minutes as yeah. well. The sense of dread mm. that was there. We know that with them, them pulling up, uh, up the drive and in the old car, there, there was a real sense of dread that came with that thinking, Oh my God, this is when it's going to happen. Tonight's tonight. This is the street. This is where it all culminates. Yeah. But then, and then those comedic elements did kind of undercut that. And, and I'm a fan of like, like home invasion movies. I think some of like, say like the strangers, us that came out this year. Um, those kind of really, really tense, suspenseful, nerve-shredding home invasion movies are really effective. And this had elements of that that were then, as you say, undercut. So how does that differ from, you know, let's say the ending of Django, where Django, you know, blows off Samuel L. Jackson's kneecaps and Mm. makes the whole plantation owner's house explode and everything like that? What, What part of that works that doesn't work here that's an interesting that's a good question i think Uh, it's again i think it's it's the time or the distance from it yeah it's it's more far removed i mean i i don't know exactly when django was set but i i can imagine that there's not people within living memory of those events anymore right and so to kind of have that extreme violence against the perpetrators of that violence feels it doesn't feel indulgent it feels just almost it feels like this is this is okay because these were horrible people. And it's the same case for the Manson family, but it, I feel like not enough time has passed. And there's, I mean, there's so many, there's so many films where I suppose with the message of vengeance doesn't make you feel better. You know, it, you know, if an eye for an eye, you know, doesn't work, two wrongs don't make a right. There's so many films that have that kind of message, uh, which rings true with a lot of, you know, which, which rings true with a lot of people. This film didn't take that message. It took the message of these people deserve what they got. And arguably they did. But like I say, not enough time has passed for it to feel like not insensitive towards their victims. See, I always think of Django as a superhero film in some ways. Okay. Because uh, you have this guy who almost has like this superhuman (laughs) abilities where he can just like... I don't know, kill, well, you know, kill an entire mansion full of people and just blow everything up. And it's like, that's not a normal thing that someone could do, that a human could do by themselves and not get (laughs) injured in any way. But he kind of comes out unscathed uh, unscathed and you are really rooting for him. So I feel like that is, it's kind of fulfilling some weird power fantasy where you're like, yeah, go, yeah, get him, Django. You can just, yeah, kill them all. So you kind of, I think... There's a, a level of excitement there where you just want to see this huge action, uh, all these bits of action scenes playing out. Um, and I think Django had a reason to be violent because of all the stuff that happened before. You know, mm-hmm. he, he'd been enslaved, his wife had been taken away from him, he'd been tortured. Yeah. There were all these reasons for him to want to be aggressive towards people. But in this film, I mean, there was no reason for... There well, was no it's, kind it's of always... reason for Cliff Booth to be so brutal towards these people yeah but it's it's kind yeah. of alluded throughout the film that he has this dark past and he's he maybe killed his wife possibly yeah i've read some interesting stuff about that like whether 
you know, it's sort of, it's intentionally ambiguous and whether you think that he did it versus whether you think that he didn't do it is telling of how you interpret the film. It's a little too much for me to, to wrap my head around, but that, that's an interesting point. Right. Yeah. It's, it's always kind of hinted at that he isn't actually a nice guy. Right. And at least for me, I wasn't sure whether I should root for this character. Whereas in Django, I was very much on Django's side. <laughs> like throughout the entire yeah. film, I was like, yeah, man, I want this guy to, to win. Whereas with Cliff Booth, I, I was, I was a bit unsure. Like he's a cool character. He, he has that, he's really smooth and he's got a certain charm about him. He's the one person in the world that can rock double denim and, and still look very true. <laughs> cool very shoe. And oh. he's Brad Pitt. So. Exactly. That always yeah. helps. Yeah. Oh, he's a very handsome man. But, um, I, yeah, I was never unsure whether I liked the character. I, I always felt a bit unsure about whether I wanted him to, uh, I don't know, succeed, I guess. I think he was likable in a superficial way. I yeah. think he was, he was pleasant enough character to watch on screen. Maybe that's a good uh, thing to say about Hollywood as well. It's good in a superficial way, but yeah. once you get underneath, yeah. it's pretty pretty bad. Oh, we're digging deep here now. Oh, I know. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but yeah, but no, I, I, I do agree. I think, like, like you say, he's, he's likable enough to watch on screen and to want to watch him in scenes. But yeah, did, was I, was I rooting for him? I don't really know. Yeah. And I, like, yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't really want to see him brutally kill these characters. Obviously, I didn't want them to do what they did. But I, I, I didn't really feel that there was a need to be so incredibly brutal it, it didn't yeah it felt a bit unnecessary yeah. i i agree with you i i didn't want like when he was like smashing her head into the thing i was just stop you don't uh, yeah stop i i do think i think all of you are the one saying the the thing about time like not enough time has passed i think that's interesting and as as you mentioned like this would not fly at all if we did this with, you know, terrorists or um, something, if I'm going to get, you know, morbid here for a second, but like a, a school shooting person, like, mm, yeah. I don't think that would fly like some sort of revenge fantasy on stopping, you know, a school shooter or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And it doesn't do anything to help that problem. Right. Uh, sort of. I mean, I don't, I don't, have you ever seen Zero Dark Thirty? I have, yeah. I mean, the first, I don't know, the kind of the first touch of that film is when they're interrogate, interrogating um, some of the Al-Qaeda members and it's brutal and it, it that is an uncomfortable scene to watch. And it's intended like, to be, I believe, yeah. right? Like, and the, yeah. like the brutality towards these people who are not nice people. They have done unspeakable things, but even seeing that brutality towards them feels uncomfortable because it's because it not, it's not far removed enough from where we are now. And yeah. so I, I, I agree. I think it to do to switch it and Tarantino affy that concept wouldn't work at all. Yeah, I wonder if the rest of the film had been more hyper fantasy esque. Um, I mean, obviously, as we said, like at the start of this, that it, it is it's got this magical realism feel to it. But I wonder if it was something more like Django, where it's pretty clear that you know this clearly never happened or anything like that. I wonder if that would make it a little more okay. 
mm. to to experience this sort of act of just intense violence in a less realistic setting. I don't know. I, I suppose so. Yeah, sort of really dig into that feeling that, that this isn't a real film. Uh, not a real film, but <laughs> this isn't real life. <laughs> it's yeah. obviously a real film. But... Did we dream it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did it? <laughs> Yeah, it's sort of it's almost like it's the whole eye for an eye thing where just because you kill somebody who is a murderer, that makes you a murderer. That doesn't that doesn't mean that doesn't take away the murders that they committed. That just means right. that you killed someone, somebody yourself. It's not getting revenge is, is kind of it doesn't help. If Cliff had assaulted all of those three people and they had then gone to prison without yes. killing Sharon Tate and her guests I think that would have landed a lot better I would have felt, felt a lot heroic. it would have felt mm-hmm. heroic yes. yes and it would have felt justice was served mm. although it is interesting that you know the the film is a revenge film in the sense that we know what happened but in the context of this world these yeah. people haven't that you know he's not taking revenge on them for killing Sharon Tate in the film although in our world that is that is what's happening it's it's bizarre it's almost like uh Tarantino's revenge by making mm. this film yes maybe he felt like something was robbed when they did this so him making a film where they're brutally murdered is is his revenge not so much Cliff Booth's if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely. That's, that's a really interesting point, actually, because, I mean, revenge is such a massive theme throughout Tantino's filmography. Right. And it's, like you say, it's almost taking his own revenge in this time. It's, it's, it's him trying to enact his own sense, well, uh, maybe not sense of justice, but, yeah, it, it's, it seems that he was very, it feels like there's a lot of anger behind that. Um, I, I read something actually, which is quite interesting. Here, Tarantino talking about all these scenes of, of Sharon Tate just kind of living her normal life. Um, you know, going to a bookstore, going to see a film, that kind of thing. They're very normal things. Uh, apart from the Playboy Mansion party, of course. I mean, we all right. do that every now and then. Uh. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And he said that, that that is what they robbed her of was that normal life. People always try to think of, you know, they robbed her of the chance to be this huge, successful film star because I think a lot of her success came after her death. But mm-hmm. it really, they, they robbed her of the chance to live a normal life. So it does very much feel like Tarantino's revenge on the Manson family for, for something that they did in real life. Yeah, one of the controversies of the film is... Well, I don't know if controversies is the right word, but takes, I don't know, um, is that Sharon Tate was kind of sidelined in the film and Margot Robbie didn't have any lines or anything like that. Mm. Um, I found that I thought, and maybe it was because I was, I was searching for this, but I found that the film was really good actually at portraying Sharon Tate. Cause as you say, she got very famous as the person who was murdered by the Manson family. But in this film, she's shown as, you know, having a life. They, this film gives her life and gives her, beauty in like it shows that she got happiness out of what she did and you know there's the whole scene of her watching herself on screen and Mm. acting it out and everything Mm. and i thought that that was pretty touching i i thought i i liked the um interpretation of sharon tate here how do you guys feel about that i thought it was it was a strange decision for tarantino not to take full advantage of the star power that is margot robbie 
Like it, it, true, uh, yeah. Um, but at the side, but I agree. I think she was really portrayed as this really pure, innocent character to whom these unspeakable things happened. Um, but then I think in terms of her kind of screen time, if you like, in the context of this movie, Sharon Tate is affiliated with the Manson murders and the Manson murders aren't the main focus of this film for a large part of it. Rick right. and Cliff are the main focus. And so that, and that's where the screen time is dedicated. The screen time that Margot Robbie is uh, afforded is affiliated with the, con- in, in the context of the Manson murders, which is, I think, I think you used a good word earlier. It's just kind of the periphery, if you like, of this film and what it culminates in. But that's not the running narrative, if you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it does. I, I think she is a fantastic choice to play Sharon Tate. Um, especially yeah. visually, she, that was incredible. Like, um, but yeah, there was a lot of, uh, very much a lack of dialogue on her part. She didn't really have too much to do in the film. Um, she was very much there. I think it relies a lot on you knowing who Sharon Tate is before going into that film. Because mm-hmm. it's it's never quite explained. If you have no idea who Sharon Tate is, you wouldn't really know what the big deal is, I guess. Right. Um, but I, I liked that she was just kind of living her life. Like, you just yeah, got to see yeah. her exist. And I mean, I, I don't... I, I, at least, in my daily life, don't have prolific dialogue on a regular basis. <laughs> so I, I did like just kind of watching her... I, I don't want to say be I feel like saying that a woman is a like a, a symbol of innocence is a little insulting, maybe. But mm-hmm. like, you know, that sort of is how she's portrayed in the movie as being this like the beauty of the time. And I think that it was nice to see her as that as opposed to a victim of this horrible crime, yeah. um, which is how she's remembered throughout history, which is unfortunate. I did. I really, really enjoyed the the final scene. Uh, where Rick finally gets to meet Sharon Tate. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really touching um, because it it sort of shows what could have been uh, for her. Uh, you know, she she's pregnant. And yeah, just living, I suppose, a, a normal life, uh, meeting people, inviting them inside for drinks. And it, it's very much just a normal thing. And it kind of, uh, all the way throughout the film, you have those little scenes and, of her being this... Uh, excited aspiring actress I suppose and you know the person in the the, the ticket seller in the cinema uh, not knowing who she is and her having to explain oh, look I'm in the film it's it's me that's literally me on the poster <laughs> the, that was quite nice because like it's uh, the, I think the cinema scene especially is probably my favourite of the Sharon Tate scenes where mm-hmm. she is just sat enjoying people's reactions to her acting yeah it, it was it was nice to see that kind of side of this person that we only really associate with these horrible murders. I think mm. it works in a different way as well. Um, Sharon Tate's um, inclusion in the, fil- in the film um, because I mean theoretically you kind of could just have her appear at the end if you wanted to but I don't know if you've ever seen the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I have not. One of, I suppose one of the strengths of that film is as it starts, the film starts, it starts with kind of um, like a voiceover and it talks about the characters in the film and that they are going to meet some kind of terrible fate. So you immediately know that there's two characters that are going to 
meet some sort of terrible fate. And that all oh. the way through the film, that kind of sets that kind of, there's a real sense of dread and it's thinking, oh my God, something's going to happen to these people. So you can never relax. And there's a similar thing there. You have Margot Robbie and Sharon Tate appearing periodically through the film to bring you away from Rick and Cliff and remind you there is something coming. Something mm. is at the, There is something coming at the end of this film. Um, and, it, and it consistently reminds you of that and I suppose grounds you, if you like, in the reality of what is a fantasy, a fairy tale story. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I want to move on a little bit here in a sec, but just before we do that, we haven't really talked about DiCaprio and Pitt's performance. Mm. I thought they were both fantastic. I really liked Leonardo DiCaprio's performance. I could have easily just watched him acting in the scenes of other movies and TV shows yes, for the 100%. entire thing. Oh my gosh. I, I just want to see, just watch him film Lancer again. Yeah, I loved that whole thing where it was, you know, he was in the scene and then he needed the line and yeah. that that whole little bit was great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean the first the first two acts of the film before the six month later break for me were the weakest part of the film, but those scenes were brilliant. They really, really mm. engaged me. I really, really <laughs> liked them. Yeah. I mean it's it's DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, so they're always gonna be fantastic, yeah. <laughs> I think. The right. the, the incredible actors um yeah <laughs> I, I thought they were great um i mean one thing i would say about i suppose their relationship if you like it seemed that one of the one of the things that tarantino was trying to sell to was that they had this real special male brotherly bond um that and it was kind of like a tribute as opposed to male friendship and then there's that scene on the plane where you see both of them in a split screen and they talk about how they're you know when this kind of friendship comes to an end you have to get blind drunk because that's yeah. the only way to celebrate it and that to me felt a little bit unearned because for me it felt they were more like colleagues i mean they were friendly colleagues but the whole time yeah. before that i didn't i didn't for me i didn't get that that real brotherly bond between them where they were kind of inseparable and they were thick as thieves that didn't translate to me i mean i don't know how you guys felt but that didn't translate to me so when they had that you know they're going to go out and get drunk for the last time I don't know. It didn't, it didn't land. I mean, it did seem that it was more like a, a working relationship in the sense that Brad Pitt worked for Leonardo DiCaprio. Hmm. And you're right. They didn't, they didn't totally establish that they truly were friends so much as just like amicable work partners or collaborators yeah. or something. I get, I get, or I got it a little bit when Cliff Booth was like your Rick fucking Dalton to, yeah. Yeah. to Leo when he was kind of having his, you know, existential self-doubt crisis or whatever. Mm. But other than that, yeah, I, I agree. It, the the friendship wasn't sold super well. And I mean, they do spend a good hour of the middle part of the movie separated from them from each other, right? Mm. Like, yeah, so yeah, I think there were there were certain moments of it, and it's clear that that Cliff obviously cares for him uh, in a in a friendly kind of way, because um, mm -hmm. otherwise he wouldn't do all the stuff that he does for him. Um, but there were certain moments where I felt that Rick were, was just really taking advantage of that and not really, you know, just kind of sending him home to fix his TV aerial while he goes off and is a movie star. I don't know. It was felt a bit like he was not really appreciative of him. Cliff just kind of doing all of his dirty work, more or less. Not exactly dirty, yeah, but just he's like a janitor, I suppose. Oh, <laughs> I'll I'll just 
close out by asking one last question. I agree with you that I think the uh, the time jump, or I mean the 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 act after the time jump was the best. But why did they have to do a time jump at all? I didn't totally understand the whole purpose of them going to Italy and everything like that. I don't. Why didn't the events? Why didn't they just shift up the events four months closer to the? Uh, the yeah. the murder or whatever i i didn't fully i thought that that was sort of oddly handled and it seemed like maybe tarantino had a three hour and 15 minute movie and they were just like nah let's let's <laughs> let's trim out that part we don't really care about that yeah i mean i i wish i could answer that question but i because i can't <laughs> because i ha- i'm asking the same question myself i mean one of the one of the frustrating things for me about the film is like i say after the six month later break i thought that bit was fantastic and if they'd kind of stretched that out to a two-hour movie I think it would have really landed for me, but if okay. I felt that aside from a very a very few little things, nothing in the first two hours of the film linked to the end of the film, and I didn't. If I suppose the most brutal way I can put it is, I didn't really care about the events of the first two hours. Like some of them were interesting, like the scene when they were filming Lancer. Yeah, I was interested in that and I liked watching it, but I wasn't really interested in anything that was going on. But mm-hmm. it was the last bit that was really interesting and there didn't really seem to be any links mm. like nothing really came back the flamethrower was the main thing that came back <laughs> from from the fir- from the from like the, the first few scenes that came back and that was a nice little kind of link between those two parts by the way i want to see that film the, uh, with Tarantino and the flamethrower well was that was that like a reference to inglorious bastards a little bit like just torching the nazis again or possibly uh, yeah yeah i don't know but <laughs> It yeah. wasn't in a, it wasn't with a flamethrower in Inglorious Bastards, right? No, they no, set some bombs or something. I can't yeah, remember. Okay. It up. <laughs> but um, yeah, I would I would watch all those films if yes, they released absolutely. like very funny. <laughs> yeah. I also I'd... want to see the FBI episode with DiCaprio. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, one yeah. thing I do really want to quickly mention: Tarantino's foot fetish comes back with a vengeance in this film. Hundred percent. Yep. <laughs> it very much distracted me. <laughs> <laughs> because, because, like, I, I, you know, I knew about this whole foot thing going into it. So then, every time a pair of feet appeared on screen, it was just like, oh, come on, man! It's definitely a Tarantino <laughs> movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's move on to our point two section where we talk about some of the other stuff that we've been watching. So, Ollie, I'm going to have you go first. What have you been watching recently? What have I been watching? I recently watched. The Girl with All the Gifts. I don't know if either of you have seen that. It's the zombie movie-ish, right? Yeah, it came out 2017, I think. Um, yeah, British zombie film. And I'd heard a lot of good things about it. I've heard it's kind of one of the more innovative um, and kind of interesting zombie films in recent years. I thought it was pretty mediocre, to be honest. I mean, I, the yeah. concept is great. I mean, I won't talk too much about it because I want don't want to spoil it for anyone but the concept was fantastic it was had a little kind of uh twist on it and a little bit of an air of mystery to the film which i really like whereas some zombie films just kind of seem straight survival films whereas this was a bit different um and some of the performances were fantastic but the script was really really rough it was very very distracting and really really took me out of the film um i mean i'd still recommend it i think it was a it would be a good film for people to see it's one of the like I said, one of the more interesting zombie films of, well, modern zombie films anyway. Mm-hmm. But I really had to 
make some allowances for the script because it, it really just did not read well at all. Yeah. Hmm. Mike, have you seen that? I have not. I have not. No. Okay. Oh, Ollie, where do you watch it? Um, I believe it's on Netflix Ooh. at the moment. Maybe. Well, UK, UK Netflix, Netflix right? Least, yeah. Oh yeah, with the UK Netflix. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're we're all different over oh, here. Yeah, that's, I, that's true. I one of my favorite things is when I go abroad is like checking out Netflix and seeing all the different <laughs> stuff. It and obviously, I mean, it's like grass is always greener on the other side or whatever. So I'm always like, wow, your Netflix selection is so much better. And uh, that's the problem because obviously you go abroad and you want to kind of make the most of the country that you're in. But then Netflix has some great films on it. Yep. And I really want to watch them. So, but I can't spend the whole time in the hotel room watching TV. Yeah. Like I. Yeah, I rewatched Creed 2 because it's on Netflix in Ireland. I was there over the oh, summer. Nice. Oh, and, really? Yeah. It might be on Netflix for you guys too, but um, yeah. anything else you want to talk about? Um, speaking of Brad Pitt, I watched Moneyball recently as well. I don't know mm. if you've seen that one. Um, the the baseball film about a uh, true story about um, a baseballer, Billy Bean. I think it's set in the early thousands um, who kind of redefines the way baseball is well, baseball teams are organized and picked and, and um, arranged and stuff using statistics. Um, that was a really good film. And kind of I, speaking of Brad Pitt, I really forget sometimes how diverse his filmography is. Mm. He is in some fantastic films and a yeah. huge range of different genres. I think he's got one of the most diverse filmographies I've ever seen. Um, Apart from maybe Nick Cage. Well, that goes, <laughs> that goes without saying he's in the league of his own. Um but the thing about Brad Pitt is most of his films are actually good quality, whereas a lot of <laughs> yeah. Nick, Nick Cage films are kind of like an iceberg where you've got the good films on the top, but then below that are all of his straight to, straight like, to TV films. One of the eternal questions of life, is Nick Cage a good actor? Hmm. I was I was just talking to someone and she said her deal breaker was if you thought that Nick Cage was a good actor. <laughs> uh, and I didn't say anything, but I mean, she, he's... He's hit or miss. <laughs> yeah, that's a good litmus test, that is, I think. Oh, it's an yeah. impossible question to answer, I think. Because it's like, sometimes, yes, he's fantastic. And then other times, he's a crazy person. He's yep. just a straight up crazy person. <laughs> but yeah, I, th- I think Moneyball is a great movie. It's, it's one of my favorite Brad Pitt performances. And mm-hmm. I, I admittedly haven't seen a lot of his earlier stuff. But um, yeah, he, he's a really versatile guy. And I think that movie's great. At, there's a lot of those types of movies that kind of it's like an exploration of a very specific thing and i think that Mm. that one does a really good job of making you understand why what he was doing was so profound and different and why he was good at it which not all the films like that do are you guys baseball fans at all or i know nothing about baseball i've I've seen one baseball game in my life i think i'm ashamed to say yeah (laughs) it's it's usually like playing on tvs in airport airport lounges when i'm Going away if I'm in America, yeah. but uh, <laughs> that's the that's the extent of my knowledge. I'm afraid. Yeah, okay. last time I was in the US, I saw the LA Dodgers play. Oh, oh I yeah, go on, team was the baseball teams. Let's do it. Yeah, Seattle. I think I, I can't remember what the name of the team is in Seattle. Uh, I don't remember. Mariners, no. maybe. Yeah, uh, I can't remember. But yeah, watching an LA Dodgers game. I like the NFL though. Oh, that's cool. That's my jam. Good, no. good. Yeah. yeah. We're Red Sox over here in, in Boston. And I like where I'm recording right now is actually, you know, like a stone's throw away from Fenway. So anytime oh, wow. there's uh, a Red Sox game, it's like the streets are flooded with people. And it's wow. made me very irritated at Red Sox <laughs> fans. But are we the first guests you've had from the UK? 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. How, how weird is it that you, you're you from Boston and we are from, we're in Nottingham at the minute because that's where we live, but we come from Boston, UK. Oh, yes. Really? Yeah. Yeah. How's that for a coincidence? Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, like all the places around Boston are named after places in the UK. Like, you know, yeah. there's Cambridge here, obviously. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's coincidence, though. Yeah. Great. It's a perfect podcast guest. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, Mike. What have you been watching? <laughs> um, so, so I've, I've, I'm a little bit late to this one, but I just finished watching The Boys. See, that's why I love you. You're the only one who tells me the truth. was my color yeah, it still is yeah well i can't walk them on the today show like that <laughs> no that's true i got excited i'm sorry i'm sure you are you know the drill he shot at us first oh that was gonna be one of mine yeah oh really uh well, yeah, let's we talk can, about it. Yeah, I I really enjoyed it. I thought it was and it's just super fun to watch. You know, funny in the right places, and I liked watching this kind of conspiracy develop uh, throughout the the show. Um, have you read the the graphic novel at all? I haven't. Have you? Yeah, oh, I've I've again I I've only really started reading it. Uh, the show is completely different. Um, oh, really? Yeah, okay. yeah. They they both stand up in their own right, but um, the yeah the graphic novel is so so different to to the TV show, which and and I think they managed to translate it well because they really took some of the plot points of of the graphic novel and uh, made it work more as a TV series. Um, mm-hmm. The graphic novel sort of is split up into much smaller sections, I think. Whereas this, the, the show does a good uh, job of tying in this underlying plot through throughout the entire show. Um, yeah, I guess I guess we should just say for people who don't know what it is, it's oh, of course, yeah. You know, the the premise or elevator pitch of it is: what if superheroes were real and they were like horrible people, yeah, basically, right? Kind of dicks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh that's the perfect word, dicks. Um yeah. <laughs> like it's gritty, it's dark, it's very cynical as yes. far as um yeah. like superhero adaptations are. But I agree with you. I thought I, I think it's really fun and it's surprisingly funny and like not distractingly funny like yes. some of the Marvel films can be. Mm. Um yeah, I I agreed with you. I I liked it quite a bit. I do find that the high concept Amazon shows so far are in this sort of weird twilight zone for me where they're not quite prestige television. Like they're not on the HBO level for the most part. Um, yeah. 
but they're just so much better than, you know, a lot of other content. And I tend to like Amazon shows more than Netflix shows, I think. Um, but it, it puts them in this weird speaking of expectations thing where I have this sort of prestige television expectation of them. And then sometimes they don't fully deliver. So there's, there's, I, I do think that in the boys, there's a, it's rough on the edges. There's some of the dialogue kind of needs a little reworking and stuff like that. But yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, it's, yeah, it's definitely very enjoyable. It, I think cynical is kind of the perfect word for it. It's, it's very much shows uh, and definitely a cynical view of our world as it is now, because right. you yeah. have these, this, there's essentially a big corporation that controls all of these superheroes. Uh, and they're, they're really just, it's, it's a money making business as opposed to saving people for the sake of saving people. You kind of saving people for, for the PR. Um, <laughs> yeah. And just kind of getting rich so you can continue living your gratuitous life of alcohol and yeah, you know, whatever. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it's kind of sad that that is probably what would end up happening. <laughs> yeah. And I do really like that they, they do take some of the aspects of superheroes being in real life to their logical conclusions or as far as they can without, you know, really getting into the minutia of it. So there's a lot of stuff that I did, had never seen before in this show, like thinking about, well, what would happen if somebody had super speed or what would happen if somebody was really strong and yeah. high on drugs or whatever, <laughs> you know, um, and what would happen if there was a Superman-esque figure? You've, yeah. you've read the comic book. Um, Mike, is it as clearly a complete ripoff of Justice League as it is in the show? <laughs> um, um. Uh, I don't. Maybe not rip off, but like you know, parody or it's, to some extent, yeah. Um, the interesting part is a uh, the deep in the comics does not have <laughs> a very big role at all. <laughs> but, okay, because you know, Ackman's always he's always seen as that this joke character of a of yeah. the DC universe, even though he's actually pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. um, but he's always kind of seen as a bit of a bit of a naff guy, you know, you go talk to fish, that kind of thing. Um, so I like the fact that they kind of took that concept and just ran with it with the deep. And you have this guy who is just a really lame superhero. He just, he tries <laughs> to say, you know, all about uh, saving the environment and everything, but no one really takes him seriously. Yeah. He's that kind of guy that chirps on about stuff and you're like, oh, whatever. Just There's... One scene with the dolphin, and I'm sure yes. you know what I'm talking about, that is just so funny. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, and the lobster scene. Okay. Uh, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. I'm going to have to put this on my watch list, I think. Yes, definitely. Yeah, definitely recommend it. And it's it's very well shot, and it's it looks really crisp and good. It's yeah. like you can see the money. Yes, um, absolutely. And I guess for people who are like superhero adverse, I would say that... The action scenes are, there's not really any, really. No. Like, there's, mm. I mean, there's some use of powers and there's a couple fight scenes, which I think are actually quite poor, like the way it's shot and everything. But mm. the main focus is not the action or the superhero parts of it. It's, yeah. So it's, um, it's definitely a show for people who don't like superheroes as well as a show for people who do like superheroes. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you been watching anything else you want to talk about or? Um, I not that I've been watching, but I am weirdly looking forward to Titans season two. 
Um, oh, yeah. Which I was not expecting before I started watching Titans, because I remember watching the trailers for it. Have you seen the show? I haven't. I had so, a friend that said it was it was good, but... Yeah, it takes a while to get there, though. It really does. Uh, for the first, I want to say the first three or four episodes, I absolutely hated it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but then I kind of... You have to get over that that initial uh, bit, I think, to really get to the good mm-hmm. parts of the show. Uh, and then I really enjoyed it. So I am actually looking for season two of that. And I think that comes out at the start of September. I and believe. that's on Netflix for you guys, right? Yes. I don't know if yeah. season two is going to come onto Netflix or whether it will be on... Is DC's streaming thing still a thing? I, I heard that they're like basically canning the whole thing. And yeah. maybe it's going to go in with the HBO, Max, Warner Brothers thingy. Uh, right. It's not like DC to change the plans, is it? Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is completely unprecedented on that part. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I'll I'll hopefully be able to watch it on Netflix, but I'll um, I, we'll see what it comes out. On. Cool. Well, I'll I'll check it out and uh, see. Mm. It's two people. That's good enough of a recommendation for me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so a couple of things that I've been watching, I wanted to mention just briefly was I'm really late to this, but I saw the Netflix limited series When They See Us. Have you heard of that? I've heard of it. Yeah, I haven't seen it though. Yeah. Um, so it's Ava DuVernay's um, like limited series about the Central Park Five, which was an event, uh, you know, in I believe the 80s mm-hmm. where um, a group of black teenagers were wrongfully accused of a pretty heinous crime in, in New York. And I thought this thing was just an absolute masterpiece. Um, I was totally floored by it. It's incredibly upsetting. It's really discomforting. But the filmmaking and the storytelling, I think it's incredible. Um, You know, I felt like it's only four episodes um, and each of them is a little over an hour. But I felt like after every episode, you leave feeling like you've learned something about, you know, not only our society, but also the society back then and how something this horrible could happen. And it's really, I don't know, I feel like after every single time it significantly changed my worldview Hmm. is it a dramatization or a documentary it's a dramatization um and i think the acting's fantastic all the you know the guys that they get to play the little kids and then as they grow up is all i i don't know i I thought it was all perfect casting and everything about this film was or film whatever this masterpiece of a limited series was perfect so i'd highly recommend it you definitely have to be in the right headspace obviously um this isn't one of those things that you can, after a long day of work, turn on and be like, <laughs> let me just relax and uh, watch yes. this horrible thing happen. But Yeah, I've heard from other people it's it's quite harrowing and not an easy watch. Yeah, but I mean, I think this thing should be, you know, shown in high school, in social studies classes. I'm yeah. appalled that I had never really heard of this. And, you know, I do have to learn, like, you know, the names of Columbus's ships and stuff. Yeah. That this is far more interesting and far more relevant. Yeah, absolutely. I think being able to show this in a in a history class and talk about it would be incredible. So mm. I definitely recommend it. But just go in knowing that you're going to leave pretty upset. Um, but I will say that the ending, it's hopeful. So, you yeah. know, it doesn't, it's not like, you know, it's, it doesn't crush you at the end. But Yeah, it doesn't end on a downer. Yeah, especially after that first episode, you'll feel crushed. Um, yeah. So if that's not your <laughs> cup of tea, then yeah. Did you say cup of tea just because we're British? I did, I did not. I did not. I caught. I caught it though. I, I should have said no pun intended. <laughs> Do you, you guys get that me. a lot? 
with uh, uh, only from Americans. Cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually, the 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 biggest thing will be someone uh, like we'll mention that from England, and I'll be like, oh, I have a friend in England. Do you know them? <laughs> no, no, we don't all know each other. I'm sorry. Yeah, we're a small country, but we're not that small. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the other film that I saw recently, which I also think was a masterpiece, was The Farewell. Have you guys seen that? Mm. I haven't. I've, I've, seen, I've seen you um, talk about it on Twitter, though. Yeah, I loved it. I mean, uh, so this is a mostly Chinese language film. It's about a Chinese-American girl played by Aquafina, who goes to visit her family in China, and they find out that her grandma has terminal lung cancer, and they decide, like, as a family, that they're not going to tell her that she's dying. Right. Um, and apparently, this is a fairly common tradition in China. Um, so, Aquafina has to go and visit her, kind of, like, with an excuse saying that her cousin's getting married, and the whole family has to, like, pretend that everything is fine around the grandmother, even though she's dying. And I mean, right off the bat, this film did make me cry. So that mm. will automatically earn it a ton of points in my book <laughs> because I don't tend to cry too much in films. Um, I know some people will be like, wow, I cried like four times in this film and that's never been me. So when a film does, I hold it in pretty high regard. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that one out because I'm, I'm similar to you, to be honest, um, where it takes a lot for me to cry at a film. There are only... I think there are two films that consistently make me tear up. One of them is Up, because, okay. oh, yeah, good definitely. lord, the beginning of that film really hits me. <laughs> um, and then the second one is Blue Valentine, which I, is very hard for me to watch because it just destroys me every time. Okay, um, I haven't seen that one, and I don't actually cry in Up, so I'm... I, you should you yeah. should check out Blue Valentine, because so essentially what it is, it tells the, the story of... Uh, the formation and eventual breakdown of a relationship from start to finish. And it oh, kind wow. of, there's a few, uh, it's been a while since I've watched it, but I think it skips forward, back and forward through time. But it has uh, Ryan Gosling and, oh gosh, what's the... Yeah, Mike is our resident Ryan it's Gosling not, fan. It's not Kate Blanchett, is it? No, it's... Because uh, she's in Blue Jasmine. Or Blue, yeah, yeah. I get those mixed up all the time. Michelle Williams. Oh, That's right, yeah. Uh, so it, essentially you have these two complete strangers and they meet and they fall in love. And then this this isn't really a spoiler, by the way, because it does go back and forth. But yeah, it's about the, the breakdown of their relationship. And it's it's hard to watch because it's so relatable. Just mm -hmm. to, And, you know, if you've ever fallen in love and unfortunately fallen out of love, it's, you know, you, it really hits you in that, those wow. kind of feels so I'd, I'd, okay. I'd highly recommend that all right i'll check that out to the, make you the one that always makes me cry is uh inside out the i think the uh, pixar no. one. <laughs> oh, okay yeah it's okay i haven't seen that one what's which oh it's oh, oh man it's, it's great um so i mean it, it all takes place in the mind of a little girl and it's all like personified emotions that kind of mm. control this little girl's life and it i don't want to spoil much but it it kind of really gets into the the idea of growing up and how that changes your emotions and the complexity of emotions how things can be right. both sad and happy and just where i was at that point in my life kind of like you know moving across the country away from my family and everything like that um like mm. that it just broke me and the idea of having to lose parts of yourself as you grow and 
I th- I think that film's beautiful. So wow, um, yeah, it's it's very very good. It's it's so high concept as well that they yeah such, and that they managed to boil down into something that kids will understand, but then also hits you like a ton of bricks as well when you when you're an adult as well. Ah, oh, yeah, I have to watch that as well now. I, I yeah, definitely watch that. And if if you don't have some sort of emotional reaction, you're not a human being. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, but I mean, speaking of that, uh, the farewell, I think is very similar to that. It's very sweet and it kind of explores the differences between the Eastern and the Western cultures and how they frame the ideas of family and your responsibility to family mm. specifically. And I mean, I'm not, you know, an Asian American or anything like that. So it's not like I constantly struggle with those two cultural, um, idealities, but I did really relate to the idea of a family as a collective and kind of what it means to be a part of your family when you're not actually with them oh. and kind of the, you get a feeling of, I don't know what your guys' situation is, but you get a feel some sort of like a feeling of guilt that comes with that a little bit. Like I don't live near my parents. They live on the other side of the U S so I don't get to see them very often. And then the rest of my family lives in Finland. So wow. I only see them like, you know, once a, a month or once a year for like a couple weeks and stuff. So mm-hmm. like it, I felt very much to that uh, idea of, you know, I, I'm not there to take care of my parents. I'm not there to be a part of my extended family's life. Um, and I think that the film deals with that and expresses that in a really beautiful and kind of bittersweet way. So um, it was really affecting for me and it made me want to call my parents and everything. So Aww, that's yeah. sweet. <laughs> I, I, yeah. think, I think that um, has a lot to do with the differences between sizes of our countries. Because your parents, mm. I, I assume it would take you, uh, like you'd have to fly to them, right? Yeah, it's a six hour flight. Gosh, yeah. see, see, that's that's incredible. Because, uh, I mean, my parents, uh, I mean, I, I haven't moved too far away from them, um, but it's about an hour and a half, roughly. So mm-hmm. it's, and I know for you guys, that's like a super short trip. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mine live, mine live. Well, my mum lives two and a half hours away, away yeah. now, and, and that is a long drive. Yeah, that, that's that's a long drive. <laughs> that's for us. a long that's way. Like, so we're kind of in the middle of the country, right? And um, Ollie's mum lives more towards the south end of it. So it's, uh-huh. and as well, my dad used to live in London, um, which is way down south. Um, so it would be a long, a long old drive for us to go and see them. So, but just a six hour flight to see your parents is just, that's mind boggling to me. Yeah. I mean, is it's basically, pre- you know, living abroad at this point. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's, in some ways, it's easier for me to go <laughs> to Europe than it is to <laughs> go all the way across the States. So, um, yeah, but, um, I don't know, just that, that feeling of family and, and unity and everything in this film, I think is, is really beautiful. And then, you know, it's actually a really funny film on top of that. So it's not like, you know, doom and mm. gloom and, portending death and everything like that i i think it's a really fun film and i would yeah highly recommend it so yeah definitely thanks um yeah check that out i don't i don't know if it's gonna come into theaters for you guys or or whatever but i'm sure they'll it'll make some waves in the award season too and people will make an effort to put it on hulu or amazon or something so yeah yeah we'll keep an eye out for it yeah Yeah. sounds good 
So this has been our review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Ollie, Mike, thank you guys so much for joining me today. Ah, thank you for having us on, on your wonderful show. Yeah, thank you for, for facilitating our first foray into the world of podcasting. Um, yes. You know, we love your show. You know, it's on my, you know, rotation, my podcast rotation for my commute to work. It's great to see you doing well. So thank you very much. We appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks a lot. I mean, hopefully you guys can come on again at some point. Oh, and absolutely. Definitely. Hopefully... Yeah, hopefully your uh, your podcasting stuff continues. Um, this was yes. yeah, it was great. And Ollie, I really do want to say thank you for all the support. You were definitely one of the first people that I interacted with on Twitter, and it's been great ever since. So you're a great presence to have on there, and everybody in that community is is fantastic. So yeah, likewise, I'm glad to be yeah. a part of it. Yeah. So is there anything you guys want to plug while you're here? Oh, we didn't prepare for this. Oh no, we didn't. <laughs> Sorry, should have should have prepped you for that. I suppose if you if anyone out there wants to have a little read of our blog uh we mostly write about films and tv shows i i mostly complain about things uh, <laughs> um or talk about superheroes so the the website is just out of our element.co.uk if you would like to check that out we're also on twitter uh ollie probably no our twitter hand our twitter handles better yeah than that's do. just um at out of our element and then you can find myself and Mike's Twitter handles associated with that as well. Yes. Yeah, cool. And I will provide all the details to that in the, the show notes. Um, oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, I've, I've read quite a bit of your stuff and I think it's it's great and it's always a good read and I really like some of your reviews. So. Oh, thank oh, you. Thanks, we man. appreciate that. I, uh, I endorse the site. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, the intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie M-A-R-A pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast on Podbean. That's at moviemarathoners.podbean.com. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. So please, please, please subscribe and write a review if you like what we're doing. And any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening. And I hope you'll join us again next week or next time. Probably not going to be next week. When we run through, I'm hoping to get one for It Chapter 2. I'm very excited for that film. Yes. So, are you guys going to see that? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Definitely. <laughs> I haven't seen any trailers for it. I've completely turned myself off because I want to be scared out of my mind every time something happens. So I have no idea what's going to happen. Mm. So we did see fun. one yesterday and it looks very, very good. Yes. Okay. Definitely All right. excited for that. All right. Well, until then. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential. Join me as I go way behind the scenes with some of the most influential people in entertainment and media. Hear actors such as Succession's Brian Cox talk about his favorite characters to play. There always has to be a mystery. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on. Meet studio execs like Pixar chief Pete Docter and learn his secret on how he makes us cry. Emotion is our first language. And so many others who are defining popular culture, from Obama speechwriter David Litt to Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi. We don't often think about food politically or we don't want to, but it really is. Join me. 
Search for Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts.